This is Nayetta. This is Dr. Ken. And you're listening to The Health Show. To The Health Show. This podcast is sponsored by Good Coworking. Good Coworking is the first solar-powered co-working community in the world focused on cultivating profitable businesses that do right by people plus the planet, all while keeping you safe in a beautiful plant-filled wellness center space. Get an address for your business, which comes with two daytime co-working days per month to get your meetings done, all for the quarterly cost of $150. Good Work have many membership options, from frequent flyer to office rental. So let Good Work help you find just the right space to help you balance life and work. Located in Dallas, Texas. Check out goodcoworking.co and tell them the help show sent you. Welcome back, guys. I hope everyone enjoyed our coffee and conversation segment. But we have to get back to our regular podcast, but with an extra twist. It's visual, so catch us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and now Spotify. We're still in a pandemic, so washing your hands and social distancing is still of importance. Providing care to the patients with cancer can be overwhelming. And caregivers are at risk for physical and psychological distress, which can negatively impact their own health. Over the past decade, Supporting caregiver well-being has gained prominence as a national health care issue. According to the National Alliance for Caregiving, cancer caregiving in the U.S. is about 2.8 million to 6.1 million in adult individuals, with such caregivings providing care on an average of 32.9 hours per week. This month's podcast We will focus on how important cancer caregivers impacts a person's life and how to keep your own mental health intact while in the process of caring for others. Today, our amazing guest will be Kimberly Alexander. Kimberly Alexander is a speaker, cancer advocate, radio show co-host, experience coordinator, and author. After losing her husband, NFL linebacker Elijah Alexander, to complications due to multiple myeloma in 2010, she decided to dedicate her time to raising awareness about the disease, fundraise for cancer research, and serve as a resource for cancer patients and their caregivers. Alexander was featured on Daytime Line NBC with Tom Brokaw discussing her life as a cancer caregiver as Brokaw shared his experience with myeloma. She narrated the award-winning health video, Multiple Maloma in the African-American Community, hosted in the Cancer Patient Survival Dinner during the American Society of Hematology Convention. And she has served as a guest panelist for both the Society of Oncology, Social Workers, and the Lone Star Blood Cancer Conference. So Ms. Kimberly, um, for those that don't know your backstory and how you got into being a cancer advocate, please let us know the story, the story right. in the journey. All right. Well, I'm going to try to give you the cliff notes version because it's a, <laughs> it's a little complicated. But um, I became a caregiver for my husband when he was diagnosed with a blood cancer called multiple myeloma in 2005. And what made his story a little bit complicated was that 
he was an NFL player. My husband had played in the NFL for nine years. And about two years after he retired, he was only 35 years old. He was diagnosed with this incurable blood cancer. And the tricky part about it was the cancer typically impacts people that are twice his age. So for him to be diagnosed with it and for it to have been caught at its worst stage, he was an organ failure by the time we found out, it was very traumatic. And so we pretty much had to hit the ground running when it came to him receiving treatment and having to go through chemo. So I didn't really have a whole lot of time to process the fact that I was a caregiver. Um, I was 32 years old at the time, and we had two little boys that were both in elementary school. And so during his treatment, um, you know, it was a lot of ups and downs. That's just kind of how myeloma is with it being incurable. It does go into remission, but quite typically it will come back out of remission and doctors are required to come up with a new um, treatment plan. And so it was a lot of ups and downs. And unfortunately, in 2010, I lost him. Um, he ultimately passed away from an aneurysm, which I was not expecting. And it was very, very fast. Like literally, I was talking to him one minute and 20 minutes later, he was gone. And so during his treatment and, and battle with cancer, he became an advocate. He wanted to fundraise for children who had cancer to help people who had multiple myeloma like he had. And he also got really involved with the cancer community, learning more about drugs that were coming into the pipeline to help myeloma patients attending blood cancer conferences and educating others about the disease. So when he passed away, I just picked up where he left off. I realized there was still a need for, you know, not only his voice, but my voice as a caregiver to do whatever I could to help others who found themselves in the same position because caregiving was a lot. And it didn't really come with a, a playbook to teach me the ins and outs of it. I just had to learn it on my own. I was wondering, and you did a really great job of kind of talking a little bit about multiple myeloma and your experience. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more, tell our audience a little bit more about what do we need to know about multiple myeloma? Because we don't really think about blood cancers very often. Generally, we think about cancers, we're thinking about breast cancer mm -hmm. or prostate Tumors. cancer, yeah. tumor kind of things. Can you tell us a little bit about what multiple myeloma is? So multiple myeloma is in the same family as leukemia and lymphoma, and it impacts uh, the plasma cells. And basically, your body is creating a lot of protein, and your system's trying to figure out a way to get rid of the protein. The myeloma can end up putting lesions on your, um, on your bones, and a lot of times it presents itself as like a bone breaking or like pain in the back. And Elijah had pain in his feet. And because of his age, a lot of people dismissed him complaining about the discomfort he'd been having. He'd been going to doctors here in Dallas and trying to figure out why he wasn't, wasn't feeling well. And they kept telling him, oh, well, you know, you're in pain because you played football. We've been playing football since you were five years old. It was actually a doctor in Costa Rica that did blood work and said, there's really something going on with your blood system and you need to get back to the States and have some more testing done. And so it's just incredible how it all happened. Myeloma impacts black men more than anyone. Um, and part of the concern about that is within the minority communities, especially the African-American community, we don't participate in clinical trials. And so it ends up being tricky with 
new drug options and treatment options becoming available because there's not enough research to be able to be done about the disease and how it impacts us. So that's one of the things that I've been most passionate about in terms of trying to raise awareness about it, get people talking about it. I talk about it all the time on social media. I try to be as approachable as possible so that people can you know, reach out to me privately and, and I'll point them in the right direction if it's a question I can't answer. And to me, that's just really important to do to make sure that what happened to our family wasn't in vain. You know, it was such a, a weird occurrence, an unfortunate occurrence, and I just don't want anybody else to have to go through it. Absolutely. When you were going through the motion um, with your husband's diagnosis, what were your fears? Oh, well, honestly, um, the morning that I found out he had myeloma, I didn't know what it was. And of course, it sounds so much like melanoma that I immediately went to Google to try to figure out, you know, what the heck myeloma was. Because in my head, you know, it's insane how quickly when he told me he had cancer, I immediately thought, oh, it's a tumor. You know, he'll receive radiation, some chemo, he'll beat it. It happens all the time, no big deal. Well, when I Googled myeloma and realized it was a blood cancer, it was like, whoa, this is a whole different ball game, you know, and it's impacting your blood. It's throughout your whole system. And so um, I, everything that I read was extremely negative, to be very honest with you. Back in 2005, a lot of the information only talked about the older patients that were being diagnosed with myeloma and that the typical lifespan was four to five years. And so with him being half that age, you know, not 70, he was only 35, you know, I told his doctor, I didn't, I didn't want that for him. That wasn't an option and we needed to make sure we could do all that we could to keep him here as long as possible. And so I just wanted to fight or flight mode. You know, to me, it was like there was no time to really process it and be sad about it because he needed to get into treatment as quickly as possible. Absolutely. You're 32 years old. Mm -hmm. He's 35. You've got two young boys mm -hmm. um, at home. Tell me a little bit about how you manage the highs and lows of dealing with everything that's coming at you at one time. Um, and even after his death, how did you kind of manage your way through that? Well, during the process, honestly, I, I don't know how. I look back on it and all of the things that were happening and how I was having to balance not only being a wife and a mom, but now a caregiver and trying to keep things as normal as possible for everyone when nothing was normal. Um, and it was a lot of on-the-job training, to be very honest with you. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, space for me to vent um, because a lot of times I didn't realize that how I was feeling was okay. You know, I had some guilt about being angry at times, some frustration with, you know, the boys not behaving because they were just little kids and they didn't understand, hey, when we go to school or we catch a cold, we have to stay away from dad when we get home because his immune system is compromised and a cold could kill him. And so there was a lot of you know, just trying to manage all of the moving parts. And when he did pass away in 2010, I tell people all the time, the only reason why I was able to make it through was because of my parents. My parents who had been divorced 32 years were living in Florida. My mom was in St. Petersburg. My dad was in Gainesville. They both moved into my house. 
What was that like? Perfect. <laughs> it was perfect for me. It was very helpful um, because they ended up being very hands-on with both of our sons. Our boys, when my husband passed away, were um, in middle school. So they were like maybe 11 and 13. Mm -hmm. And it, that's a critical age for Absolutely. little boys. And so my mom, um, she was a school teacher in Florida. So she moved here or she was a retired school teacher. She moved here and um, became a sub in their school district. So okay. she would still see wow. them and get to know all of their friends. She loved to cook. Okay. So I was off the hook, <laughs> and um, and my dad, you know, just kind of came in to do his thing. He didn't. He doesn't live with me anymore. He ended up building a house about 10, 15 minutes north of me, and so we still do holidays together. We still, I mean, it's like one big happy family, <laughs> even though they've been divorced since I was two. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. So all all during this time, you have your parents there. Um, you're dealing um, with your husband's. Um, with multiple myeloma, mm -hmm. with your husband. How did you manage your own emotions to survive? Because you have you know, your parents and you have your caretaker, your mom, your wife, your friend, your sister. Mm -hmm. You're, you have so many different titles. Mm -hmm. So how did Kimberly, how did you handle your own emotion to survive this, this everything? Well, when Eli was alive, when he was in treatment, I really did try to keep things as normal as possible. So. At the time, I had a, a t-shirt company. Um, I was doing like the the rhinestone custom t-shirts. Oh, I remember them back in the Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so I was doing them for a lot of the NFL, Major League Baseball, and uh, basketball wives. Okay. And so I would literally take all of my equipment with me to the hospital mm -hmm. and sit next to him while he was asleep and in treatment and trying to recover or feel better. And that was my therapy, you know, to just kind of sit there and put stuff together. Um, I worked out. I, I became a really big fan of fitness and how it made me feel and trying to kind of cope and push through. And um, really, that was it. The one thing that I did by accident was, um, you know, social media was a really big thing back then everybody was on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I was just kind of getting on Facebook around that time, but I had established a blog and I would update people on how Eli was doing so they didn't have to directly contact me all the time or feel like, oh, you know, we don't want to bother you. Right. Well, at the time I was in school and I was also taking a fitness class and I didn't tell anybody in that class anything about what was going on for me at home. And what I realized was it allowed me to go into a space where people treated me normal instead of looking at me and feeling sorry for me or looking at me and wanting to immediately ask me about cancer. Because sometimes just, I just didn't want to talk about cancer. Absolutely. So that to me was one of the best ways to cope. And it's one of the things that I try to encourage people to do as well, because I think sometimes people feel obligated to share or they even overshare and then wonder why is that all every everybody ever wants to talk to me about it's because you keep talking about it <laughs> right that's curious I, I have never actually kind of processed that whole idea of the more you talk about it the more other people tend to talk to you about it mm -hmm. are there other things kind of at this point in your life and you look back and you're talking to a 32 year old what kind of advice would you would you give yourself now? 
Um, as a 32-year-old caregiver, wife and mom, mm -hmm. um, be patient with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, count to 10. You know, one of the things that nobody told me about when I became a cancer caregiver was the impact of chemotherapy on the patient's personality. And there were some times when I noticed behaviors in him that were just driving me insane. I mean, even even early on, like I remember he was on a, a drug called dexamethasone, which you all might be familiar with because there's a man running our country right now who's been on that same drug. And it's a steroid that makes you very hyper and it, it causes insomnia. And it's just, it, it just, it's a scary drug, at least it was for me. And I remember him being on it and nobody explaining to me that his behavior was normal. That's kind of what happens when you're on decks, it's a necessary evil. And um, you just kind of have to learn to balance and be patient and just kind of live with him being on it because that's just now part of your new normal. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the nurses coming in and out of the room and it's like three or four o'clock in the morning. He's up talking like it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon and she's talking to him like it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And I'm like, please just stop. Like, why are you, why are you doing this? But yeah. again, once she explained to me and, and further down the line, when I realized, you know, that's just kind of normal for the drugs to impact them. You just have to learn to live with it. It's just, it's just part of it. So we, so we have the advice that you would give yourself. What advice would you give another um, person that, male or female, mm -hmm. that's dealing with the cancer care caregiver? Um, I think it's really important for caregivers to find helpful, healthy outlets for themselves. Okay. And also outlets that aren't expensive because cancer is such an expensive disease to treat. And, um, and so one of the things, one of the tips I like to give out a lot is to encourage people to go on to like Eventbrite. Okay. Eventbrite will list events that are free in your area. How did you get through this? Um, I think one of the things that helped me cope was from that moment when Elijah was diagnosed and I Googled myeloma from the hospital. Um, with me reading it and it immediately saying the typical lifespan is four to five years, you know, the 32 year old can immediately process that there was a good chance she might be a young widow. And so I literally moved forward with that always in the back of my mind, keep things as normal as possible, brace yourself for when the myeloma comes out of remission, it becomes active again, and for whatever that ends up, you know, entailing. And so that's literally what happened. The, the unfortunate part about it was that I didn't prepare for the side effects of cancer. In my head, in his head, we always assumed the myeloma would take him. And of course we would know because in the process of him being treated for it, we would be able to tell when it was becoming active. For it to have been an aneurysm so completely out of the blue caught me off guard. I mean, even the morning that it happened, it happened in our home. I remember getting to the hospital and the physician saying, oh, we see a little blood on his brain. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's just something else we have to deal with. We'll get him over this hump and 
you know, it's just something else we have to deal with. Like it never dawned on me that it was the last time he would be at home. And so we ended up having to transfer him to another hospital. And that's when they told me there was no brain activity. And I immediately knew, you know, that meant that he was brain dead. I also knew that he didn't want to be kept alive artificially. He'd already made that decision for me. So I was grateful for that. And I ended up needing to remove him from life support about three days later. They kept him on to see if there was any improvement and there wasn't. And the doctors came to me and they said, you know, even if we kept him on the machines, his myeloma hasn't gone anywhere. So we would still be having to treat him for cancer as well as trying to make sure his brain was trying to do something. And they were like, it just, it doesn't make sense. So 32 year old Kim, where were you emotions? Well, at, at that time I was 37 because it, 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 it had almost been about five years. And um, I remember the first night I went home and I sat on my floor and it hit me like a ton of bricks. My husband wasn't coming home. Mm. And all I could think about was how I was going to explain it to our boys. Mm. And that was by far um, the hardest part of everything, just trying to figure out the right words to explain to an 11 year old and 13 year old that their dad, their hero, he had been, you know, their little league coach. Um, of course, you know, they had grown up watching him play in the NFL. That was just a lot to have to process. Absolutely. Yeah. How are you boys doing? They're, they're good. Um, the boys are now 24 and 22. My oldest is Elijah the fourth and he is um, a student at UNT and, um, and he's a DJ. I think he's DJ Easy Does It. <laughs> and, um, and our youngest one, um, Evan, was drafted by the New York Yankees out of high school. And so he's a part of their minor league system. And we'll just kind of pray he makes it to the majors because that's his big dream. He's so, yeah. yeah, we'll claim it for him. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah some boys yeah. are good. I, I am curious, as I've kind of listened to you, one of the things that's really clear is that you and your husband, even during all of this stuff going on, had a fairly close relationship mm -hmm. where you were really sharing back and forth with each other around everything that was going on. And I'm curious, we've talked a little bit about your emotions, your feelings around this. How did you deal with helping him cope with the fact that I may not be here for my wife, I may not be here for my kids, and the fears that are going on and feeling like you're having to kind of support him mm -hmm. at the same time that you're supporting yourself? You know, that is a really interesting question because it just hit me not too long ago that I never really had that type of direct conversation with him. And the reason it came up was because one of my husband's teammates, wives, a few months ago in 2020, was like, hey, I don't know if you ever knew this, but Eli had pulled all the guys together and told them if anything ever happened to him, to keep an eye on you and the boys. I'd had no clue. I had no clue that my husband had had a conversation about him being concerned that he would not live much longer with his friends. And I think when it came to our household, 
you know, despite the fact that before he had been diagnosed with cancer, he was always the planner and always presenting me every year with a list of what to do if something were to happen to him. I think that he had a fear of realizing, okay, I might not see my kids graduate from high school. That was a really, really big deal for him. And it broke my heart that he passed just before our oldest went to high school. And so it's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I promised him before uh, he passed away that I would keep his nonprofit going. My husband had started a nonprofit and um, I became certified in nonprofit management. You know, I was all hands on and realized I couldn't do it. And part of that was, you know, in, in making sure that I took care of myself mentally. Um, I didn't want to spread myself too thin because I still wanted to do something in his memory. And so I shut the nonprofit down and decided to get involved with like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and some other cancer organizations in order to uh, continue to keep his memory alive that way and honor, honor his wishes. You are on Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So, question. With all the research that you have, like you're digging into so much research, what do you, what have you found new? Like, what have you found out? What are you researching now? What's like hot on the topic? I'm just really curious about that. Well, I'll be real honest with you. One of my biggest concerns right now is like something I spoke about earlier, the whole health disparities and the concern about the minority community when it comes to to multiple myeloma and not being involved with clinical trials. And what's going on with COVID is making me even more afraid because people are now watching this rush for a vaccine and being apprehensive. Like, I don't want that on me. Absolutely. And the Black community has already had a huge fear and apprehension when it comes to clinical trials because of the Tuskegee experiment. So Absolutely. to me, it's really important to try to allay people's fears right. and talk about the importance of being part of the conversation when it comes to treatment options and, and cancer research, because if we're not a part of the conversation, yeah. they're not going to be able to figure out you know, a cure for this disease. And that's really, really important to me. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, with leukemia, lymphoma, I mean, most of the blood cancers, one of the things that is really big is you're right, is that African-Americans and Latinos in many cases mm -hmm. don't participate in clinical trials related, yep. to, related to blood cancers. Yep. Um, yet I think about over the course of my career, I know multiple people that have actually died from multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. um, in two cases, really healthy young physicians that were kind of going along in life and have stories very similar to yours. And so I think that your advocacy and what you're doing is so critically important for just helping people under, understand mm -hmm. that Absolutely. and be able to try to figure out how do we, how do we crack this nut begin to solve this problem. Yeah, well, one of the things I like to do, especially on social media, I'm a huge fan of Twitter and Instagram. I'm trying to love Facebook. I'm trying. <laughs> it's hard. Right? Yeah, it's but, hard. but Twitter and, and Instagram have been really a big help because whenever I see anyone talking about myeloma, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times I'll just DM them and be like, hey, if you need any help, you know, let me know. And then because I talk about myeloma so much and I always mention it in all of my social media profiles and my bios, people will send other people to me like, hey, oh, wow. 
you know, this person's grandfather was diagnosed, I want you to talk to them. And so I love being a resource for people. Like if I can help them in, in any way, that's what I love to do. I like that. That's, that's awesome. I like yeah. that. So Kim, before we end this podcast, I just would love if you could give some encouraging words to someone um, that's dealing with a family member or a loved one or even a friend um, that's dealing with uh, multiple myeloma. Well, what I would say for someone who's dealing with multiple myeloma or honestly any cancer, because I've, I've, one of the things I've learned during my uh, time as an ambassador with some of these groups that I've had the opportunity to work with is a lot of these groups or people who are impacted by different cancers experience the same frustrations and concerns and feelings. So as a caregiver, I would definitely say be patient with yourself. Okay. Um, don't feel guilty about needing a break, even if it's 10 minutes, five minutes, 30 minutes, go outside, go for a walk, do something nice for yourself, music, um, a TV show, or just sitting in your car and just having some quiet time, like just something like don't feel guilty about needing it. And, um, and, and try to remember the things that make you feel good and, and, and encourage them to do as much of that as humanly possible, you know, in spite of the, the work that they're having to do to keep their loved one alive. You know, that's some really great advice. It's so really, and Dr. Rogers, you you know you being a um, psychiatrist, please, what do you have for your for patients? <laughs> no, I, I, I've I've really really enjoyed enjoyed our conversation because I think the my takeaway from all of this is really more of an uplifting message than anything else. Mm -hmm. That you know Elijah's story wasn't you know over because he passed away, right. um, but. The fact that you are carrying on, you know, the legacy, really being able to to help people in the community, that your kids are kids are doing well, um, and the fact that you've been able to kind of reframe and refocus, I think, says a lot about you know mental health, um, which is I know one of one of our fo focus um, areas. But the ability to just be able to kind of shift and take care of yourself and your family, and to create a new identity in many ways mm -hmm. of of um, of where you're headed, which I think is just wonderful. Well, I appreciate it because it's it has not been easy, right. you know. And I think sometimes people think that it has been, and it's like no, it's been it's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of intentional work, um, mm -hmm. but I'm in a good space. I like that. Well, I want to thank you so much um, for interviewing with the Health Show, Kimberly, and um, I want to thank our partners, which our good co-working, um, White Pearl, and then also um, the Downtown Library. So I wanna thank everybody for participating in this live podcast, and we'll see you next time. Oh, and before I forget, this is our 100th episode, and I'm so excited. This has been a journey. Um, I'm excited to share this 100th episode with you. Kimberly, thank you so much. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much. Um, I, I kind of kidnapped Dr. Rogers oh. when he first started. Yeah, I, I kidnapped him. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here with you. <laughs> so thank you guys for tuning in. See you next time. Oh, and you can go to www 
thehelpshow.org and jump and get on our newsletter. We have great newsletters. Read our newsletters. Also look at the different resources. We have probably like over 300 resources. So go check out thehelpshow.org and thank you and stay tuned. We'd like to take a moment and thank everyone in our listening audience for listening today. We'd also like to remind everyone that we are a nonprofit organization operating entirely off the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to give to our organization, we appreciate you. You can send your donation via Cash App, Money Sign, The Help Show, or on our website at www.thehelpshow.org. There's no donation too small. Every dollar given will strengthen our efforts. If you'd like to donate $1,500 or more and become a VIP sponsor, then we have some additional packages listed on our website. And you can visit us at www.thehelpshow.org for more details.